Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. God, the more we know you, the more it is that joy dances in our souls. So as we open the pages of our family's history, show yourself in its words. Whisper your love in our ears. Draw us into the embrace of your arms. Let our hearts beat a little faster as we hear the sound of your voice so near. Amen. The scripture for this morning comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 23 through 31. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Share the news of his saving work every single day. Declare God's glory among the nations. Declare his wondrous works among all people, because the Lord is great and so worthy of praise. He is awesome beyond all other gods, because all the gods of the nations are just idols, but it is the Lord who created heaven. Greatness and grandeur are in front of him. Strength and joy are in his place. Give to the Lord all families of the nations. Give to the Lord glory and power. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring gifts, enter his presence. Bow down to the Lord in his holy splendor. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, he set the world firmly in place. It won't be shaken. Let heaven celebrate. Let the earth rejoice. Let the nations say, the Lord rules. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Last week we talked about practice, practice, practice. That if you're uh, wanting to develop the habits that lead to a home run faith, the first is to practice them. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, teaching a young child how to pray. If you're teaching a young child how to pray, um, it, it's all those physical pieces. Praying hands, praying eyes, repeat after me. That if we were to do those things often enough, the words continue over time to connect with our heart and to connect with the Almighty. That when we think about the habits that help us develop a home-run faith, that you could um, kind of establish some basic skills, much like the habits that lead to being a great baseball player. Uh, on social media, I asked the question, uh, what is the first thing you teach a young child uh, to become a baseball player? And I have to be honest, I wasn't really looking for the answer, but I was looking to see what y'all would say. And oh my gosh, there are some wonderful Closet World Series um, uh, coaches that just haven't been there yet. Um, I had one person private message me saying, this is how you do it, Pastor. You first teach uh, the children how to bat. Because you see, batting is a, it's a failure opportunity. And if they don't have the perseverance to survive the process of learning how to bat, you don't want to waste any more time on them after that. Oh my goodness. I would have never gotten through Little League if that was the approach. Can I get an amen, Anna? Maybe, all right. What comes first? You know, um, I appreciated one person who said, you know what you need to do is, is sit him down and give him the glove. Let him hold on to the ball. You need to um, draw out the bases, write out the rules, and just make sure they have a, a cognitive understanding of what's going to be happening on the field. 
Which I have to say, if you're doing six-year-olds for a little league, oh my goodness. Right. Um, eventually, I got some great advice. Uh, one of it is um, you, you teach them how to catch. Um, that catching comes first. That every child can throw, right? I mean, we've all thrown something. I like to believe that toddlers are uh, closet psychologists. Um, they sit in their um, high chair and they throw things over the high chair just to see how many things they have to throw until you'll get them for them, right? Throwing comes natural. Catching, right? How to, how to wear the glove. How to open the glove so that the ball comes in. How to close the glove so that you grab it. Um, a good piece of advice I got was you need to tell them not to put their hand in front of the glove as the ball comes. It's a great way to hurt your hand, right? I mean, it's great stuff. Catching comes first. So what comes first in developing habits for a home run faith? I would say that worship is the first. The first among equals. The first in a beginning. You see, worship provides all of those opportunities that we need. It's kind of the basic food groups, if you will, of Christian discipleship. Worship is where we do a lot of things. Worship is where we learn, think, and feel. Worship is where we laugh, cry, and pray. Worship is where we belong. It's where we question. It's where we wonder. Worship is not just sacred space because we encounter the holy. Worship is sacred space because it captures the range of experience of our lives. It is where we confirm the young, where we baptize the new. It is where we bury those whom we have lost. It is where we celebrate a marriage. It is a place where lots of things happen and come together. Worship is also great for every stage of discipleship, right? Uh, when you think about it, um, uh, guests come and they kind of sit on the fringes of worship, right? Just to kind of hear what we say and what we do and what the style is. They, they sit on the fringes waiting to see whether this is a place they want to belong. When you think about the new folk in the faith, if you don't know how to pray, sit next to somebody who does. If you're not really sure what to do with your body during worship or how to sing, sit in front of somebody who sings in the choir. You're going to hear those tunes right behind you. It's an amazing opportunity in worship for all levels to find an opportunity for growth. Worship is that beginning place it is the nursery of Christians. It is the postgraduate school of discipleship. It is where it all comes together. So our scripture passage is a moment of worship plucked out of biblical history. Um, this is the chronicler is telling about the songs of praise and the organization around worship that happens as David moves the Ark of the Covenant from Gibeon Sorry, I'll show you the picture. From Gibeon to Jerusalem. Um, I, I believe, and y'all keep me uh, truthful on this, um, that Saul had lost it in battle, and uh, David had decided to move the Ark of the Covenant from Gibeon, where there were um, sacrifices made, into Jerusalem. Now, the image that the chronicler wants you to get here it, it is that 
Um, the Israelites want so badly to go back to that time when they lived in the land of milk and honey. They want to go back to that time when they were led by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. And that the Ark of the Covenant is that physical representation of where, the holy, uh, where, where, uh, where God's holy presence is. And so David sees fit to bring it to Jerusalem. Uh, David sees fit to do this because, um, shockingly, um, if you put the presence of God in the middle of your life, whether that's the city, uh, the capital of your nation, or, or whether it's just the beginning of your week, when we uh, allow the presence of God to be in the center of all that we do, everything then makes sense. Uh, um, our scripture is uh, a little taste of what it looks like uh, for the people of God to praise God. And so as they're walking with the Ark of the Covenant, they are singing these songs of praise. And these words are not new to you. If you have been on the fringes of any worshiping community, you've heard these phrases. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. Beautiful music, right? Uh, as Methodists, we often say that if you learn the songs of Charles and John Wesley, you are learning the faith at the same time. The Methodists sing their faith. And so worship always includes elements of worship and praise, not just to sing our emotions to God, but to say out loud what is true about the faith that we hold. The Bible is full of stories of worship. Um, it'd be easy just to uh, plop the Bible open and to land on a place where worship is happening. I know for me, I enjoy the story from John chapter 4, where Jesus has gone to uh, the well um, at noon, uh, gone to draw water. Now, going to the well at noon is not what everybody does. It's kind of like going to Chick-fil-A at noon, right? No, no one really does that. Do, do you do that? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I have to be honest, the amount of line, uh, the number of cars, and, and um, uh, I, I'm sorry, I just say it. I think there's something addictive in the food that Chick-fil-A is serving. <laughs> Why in the world would so many people line up for it every lunch at noon? You're not going, the early service loved this bit. 24 hours. 24 hours, oh my gosh, I know, right? <laughs> like you have to go six in the morning if you want to like not have to wait in line. And nobody wants to go inside. What is that about? Right? I mean, are, are your cars that nice that you just don't want to get out? You want to stay for 30 minutes? In the, you know. Anyways, so the, woman, <laughs> so the woman goes to the well at noon, which no one does. It's the heat of the day. No one gathers water at the heat of the day. They come in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. Uh, it's not unlike um, the, the woman going at, at noon. It's like me going in my pajamas to Kroger at six in the morning. It's because I don't want to see any of y'all. Um, and so the same thing is true about the woman at the well. She didn't want to see anybody. You, you see, she had been the topic of gossip. Um, she had not lived her life correctly. Uh, and that she didn't want to see anybody because she didn't want to endure the whisperings about her. But Jesus is there. And Jesus says that he knows her. Uh, that he knows that she's uh, uh, not married uh, to the man that she's living with and has uh, been married a number of times already. That, that he knows that she has great shame about these. But he loves her and welcomes her. 
And in the midst of this conversation, uh, they talk about worship. She says, um, uh, my people have worshiped on this mountain for a long time. And he says, Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks just as these to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I love that she says, my people have worshiped on this mountain for generations. I love interacting with some of y'all and finding out how long you've worshiped in this space. I love finding some of you who've grown up as children in this church and chosen to raise your children in this church. There is something about being in the same place where you were born into the faith, where you were told about praying eyes and praying hands, where you have ushered, where you have been married, where you have spent so much of your formation practicing. It's a powerful thing. There are more places in worship, where, or in the Bible where worship is talked about. One of my favorite comes with Paul. Paul identifies that all that we do in our day-to-day -day life is worship. All that we do in our day-to-day -day life is worship. We tend to think that worship is only what we do here in the sanctuary, that it is um, what's on the bulletin, um, that the preacher shouldn't go off script, um, that we should stay on time. But Paul says, no, everything we do. Paul says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. You see, once we get connected to that spirit of truth, once we begin our, not just our week with worship, but our mornings with prayer, we are being formed into a disciple. Uh, you know, it's powerful about uh, watching professional baseball is that the pros make it look so effortless, but their effortlessness comes because they have practice, they have worked, they have sacrificed, it is the same for us that if we will only engage the activities, if we will only be present to the Spirit, if we will only do those things in worship that allow for God to shape us and change us, we will find the faith being effortless, effortless for us as well. Discipleship starts with worship and comes back to worship. It's almost like one of these nice circles it's hard to do discipleship without being part of a church community. Sure, you can listen to the podcast online. Uh, you can um, uh, watch uh, streaming worship from anywhere. Uh, you can hang out with uh, Joel Osteen uh, via the TV. I get it. But sometimes being in the midst of a community makes all the difference in our discipleship. Um, I entitled this sermon, The Work of the People, which is kind of a strange thing to say. Work of the People is a strange reference to the academic word for worship, which is liturgy. Liturgy, when we translate it back to the Latin, in the Roman Empire, um, the um, public works group, uh, so this would have been uh, the part of the empire that um, made sure the aqueducts ran, made sure the roads were paved, and made sure that the trash was cleared away, would have been entitled the liturgy group. I know it sounds really strange, right? <laughs> but it literally means the work of the people. Liturgy translates to that public work. The, the realization that uh, worship is not something that I can do. 
It's something that we do together. It is the work that we do for the good of the community. You could say that worship keeps the water flowing for those who are dry, that worship keeps the roads open to receive God's grace, and you could say that worship clears away the trash that junks up our lives and distracts us from Jesus. But we can't all do it ourselves. Could you imagine being the last person on the face of the earth and you'd have to come to worship? I mean, my goodness, you'd have to get here early because you need to usher. Uh, Turn on the lights, turn on the AC, right? You'd run up here and play the prelude. You'd run back, turn on the microphone, come here and do the welcome. Turn off the microphone because you never want that, you know, open mics, not good. Um, And then you'd have to sing the song together. You'd have to read scripture, um, say the sermon. You'd have to amen your own sermon uh, and then run to the back right after the benediction because you need to say good sermon to yourself. Let's say again, the early service bought that a lot better than we all did. Worship is not a solo experience. I know we say it's the work of the people, but yet here I am uh, with a little bit of sweat on my brow. But still, it is something that we do together. We don't come out of duty to get something. We come because God has already done something in our lives. Uh, There's a tendency, Evelyn Underhill, who's an academic writer about worship, a tendency for communities to allow their worship to decline. It declines from adoration to demand, from uh, recognizing the supernatural to making people conform to an ethical litmus test. Worship declines from we come out of a sense of gratitude for all that we have, and we eventually only show up because of duty. Can you appreciate that that slide? When we're new in the faith, it's all about adoration, the supernatural work of God, and the gratitude that we have for forgiveness of our sins. And that if we don't allow uh, the water to flow, if we don't allow the grace to arrive, if we don't cart off some of that trash that blocks up our way with God, we quickly become a kind of people who worship by demand, who, who expect uh, ethical action without any recognition of the grace that comes. And we're a bunch of fussy people who work only out of duty. Worship at its best. Worship at its best is this admiration for the holy. It is this acknowledging of the grace that's available. Worship at its best has an element of mystery in the moment. And worship at its best contains two gazes, both adoring. One is our adoring gaze of God, and the other is God's adoring gaze of us. Notice that worship at its best doesn't require me to wear skinny jeans or a robe. It doesn't require us to sit in a Gothic cathedral or in a storefront startup church. That worship at its best doesn't require just a band or just a choir. Worship at its best. It doesn't matter what are the preferences around it. Worship at its best. When we are learning uh, habits for a home run faith, it inspires in us an admiration for the holy. It acknowledges the grace that's available. It places mystery in the middle of the moment. And it's two gazes, adoringly creator and created, connecting. 
I don't know where you are in the discipleship journey. If you're on the fringes, even though you've been here maybe for 40 years, or if you're smack dab in the middle, drying up, wondering where grace is, and maybe even covered with a lot of trash. But I hope, I hope for you, as we go through this summer, that first things first, walk before you run, catch before you bat, and worship before all else. If you think you're the, uh, the person with the least clue of what's going on, I, I promise you, there's other folk who are wondering whether they belong. And the way we make worship together is by welcoming those from the fringes to come to the center. And together, we offer what we have. Some know how to pray. Some know how to preach. We can all sing our faith. But what's most powerful is when we do it together and when we do it in gratitude for the work that God has done in us and through us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.